Let me invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our Sunday morning sermon series through the book of Exodus. This morning we'll be looking at Exodus 20 verses uh, 22 through 26. If you have not brought a Bible with you this morning, there are uh, pew Bibles and the pew racks in front of you, and our passage this morning is found on page 61 in those pew Bibles. We have gone through the uh, Ten Commandments, and we have seen the people's response to the Ten Commandments. In particular, we saw last week in verse 19 that they uh, said to Moses, uh, after seeing the flashes of lightning and and hearing uh, God's voice speak, they said to Moses in verse 19, you speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest he die. Uh, God's voice was threatening. God talked, and the people heard. Now as we move on, uh, we see that Moses is the one who will speak to them. Uh, Last week in verse 21, the passage ended, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So now God is going to give more commandments uh, to his people. And in fact, we're going to be looking at these commandments um, over the next uh, few chapters. Uh, some of them, some, some of them we're going to take, take in small chunks, some of them we're going to take in large chunks. Uh, but anyhow, uh, we, there are many commandments. So I'm going to talk about those when we get into the sermon this morning. So hear the Word of God from Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep, and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for your laws that reveal your holy character. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us from your law today, that you would write your word on our hearts. Change us by it, O God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with a question. Why did you come here this morning? Why did you come here this morning? Maybe you're here because your parents made you come. 
Maybe you're here out of habit. This is what I do. I go to church on Sundays. Maybe you're here to see people. It's a good place to see people we know and see friends. But as the old hymn puts it, brethren, we have met for worship. When we come together on Sunday mornings, we meet to worship the living God. Indeed, what God wants, what God demands is our worship. We see this over and over again in Scripture. Jesus says in John 4 that God is seeking worshipers. He's seeking those to worship Him. Romans 1, the flip side, the very root of human sin on which God pours out His wrath includes a failure to worship God. They did not give glory or worship God. And of course, our Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were created for worship, to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. Now, in our worship forever, in uh, eternity with God. Let me invite you to take your hymnal. We're not going to sing right now. Turn to the very end, page 859. Uh, Sorry, I'm having you open that up too soon. Uh, Keep that open. (laughs) We're going to come back to that. Of course, our catechism says... Question number one, the shorter catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We were created for worship, but we were also redeemed for worship. Indeed, that's what we have seen in Exodus. Let my people go that they may worship me. That was the theme we saw early on in the early chapters of the book of worship. We, uh, in the book of Exodus, we cannot worship God without being saved by God. And if we're truly saved, we are saved to worship God. That's what Scripture teaches. Worship, true, deep worship from the heart is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. If you're not a worshiper, you're not truly saved. We're saved to worship. And so it is fitting that after the giving of the the Ten Commandments, uh, after God's establishing His covenant with His people, God's first instructions have to do with proper worship. They're not comprehensive but they have to do with worship. And in fact, we have what we might call an inclusio 
in this section of laws uh, beginning at the end of chapter 20, although really primarily and in, in, yeah, begins in 21, but really at the very end of 23, begins in earnest in chapter 21, goes to the end of chapter 23, it begins and ends with instructions on worship. It bookends this section of laws focusing on the worship of God, proper worship. Now we are moving into, in the book of Exodus, what is called the book of the covenant. That language is used in chapter 24, verse 7. Uh, And again, the book of the covenant runs through chapter 23. And what does it do? It applies the Ten Commandments to life in society. It applies the Ten Commandments. That's what we're going to see in the next three chapters. The application to everyday life in, uh, in, in Israel in particular. Now, what is given here, these laws that follow are distinct from the Ten Commandments in many ways. They are written on parchment instead of inscribed on tablets of stone for one, for one thing. They are written by Moses instead of being written by the hand of God, the finger of God, as we have seen with the Ten Commandments. They're written by Moses, then read by Moses to the people versus God speaking to them the Ten Commandments. They're going to be read by Moses. This is also what we call case law. It's descriptive laws. It's not to be comprehensive. And it is also temporary. Temporary. Uh, Yet, they have principles for our use. In other words, temporary, they apply to the ancient Israelites as given here. And yet, there are principles for our use today. Now, you can look at your hymnals page 859, chapter 19, on the law of God, of the law of God, and look at paragraph 4. We read this, to them also, as a body politic, he, God, gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, that is Israel, the state of Israel, not not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. In other words, these commands are not directly for us, although we need to see them as far as the, the general equity requires. Now, what in the world does that term general equity means when it comes to these judicial laws? The point here is that the their laws are given for Old Testament times, but they do not apply in the exact same way today. But their moral equivalent applies to today. And so we're going to be seeing moral principles in these laws that God has given uh, to his people 
today. That's what that general equity means. The moral equivalent applies for today. Uh, Dr. Currid, so we, we're often talking about Dr. Currid. Many of you don't know Dr. Currid. Uh, he was a, he's an RTS professor, Old Testament professor, used to be on staff here. Dr. Currid uh, called these, called them ordinances, although the ESV reads rules uh, in 21.1 that reflect uh, cases, decisions that um, rest on prior precedent is what we're going to see in the, the verses that follow, the chapters that follow. He goes on to say that these laws deal with specific social and economic contexts, whereas the Ten Commandments do not. They are applications of the Ten Commandments to that particular time. And yet, we can learn much from them. But it begins with proper worship. And that's where we are at the end of chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. Begins with proper worship. And again, we know that worship is central to being God's people. And more than that, God wants us to worship Him correctly. We are called to worship the correct God correctly. We worship only as God dictates, only as God prescribes in His Word. And so God gives instructions about worship. So let's look at a few things in our passage this morning. The first is God alone dictates how His people are to worship Him. God alone dictates how His people are to worship Him. And the first thing to notice is that it is word-based. God's worship is word-based. Notice how our passage begins in verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. He doesn't say, you have heard my voice as I talk to you from heaven. You have seen that I have talked to you from heaven. In other words, the fact that God spoke rather than appearing in visible form is key for worship. That's the point here. The fact that he spoke instead of appearing in visible form is key for the worship of his people. In other words, God is focusing their attention on his word. They didn't see him. They heard him. They heard his word. God speaks. And as we saw last week, that, that voice of God is, is powerful and can indeed be frightening. Notice also in this verse here, he says, I, I, when I talked with you from heaven, he is transcendent, not localized like the ancient gods, which means he's also beyond their condescending, making images uh, of him, of their own imagination. And this leads into verse 23 then. There's a we see this, you shall not 
make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. There's a connection here. God is speaking, forbidding visual representations of himself. This verse 23 actually is a combination of the first two commandments. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. That language, to be with me, is uh, basically a repetition of commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. And then next, of course, the images, you shall not make idols for yourself. No idols, gods of silver, gods of gold. In a sense, we can say that those first two commandments are a summation of all ten. They're a summation of all ten. They certainly get at the root of all of the ten commandments. Is God God? Yes. If so, we follow Him. We walk in His ways. We have a proper fear of Him, as we saw last week, that leads to obedience. And this is especially true in our worship. Obeying God in worship, how He dictates our worship. Who and how. And first of all, it's to be word-based. Secondly, though, it is to be simple. It is to be simple. Look back with me earlier in chapter 20 at the second commandment itself. Notice here in the second commandment, the focus is on what idols represent. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness uh, of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, etc., etc., etc. The commandment goes on. Here, it is the focus is on how they are made, not gods of silver or gods of gold. In other words, he's referring to their visual appeal. Their visual appeal. Phil Riken in his commentary using the essayist uh, John Seabrook talks about the, the attraction of the buzz. The buzz. We're attracted to glamour and to glitzy things, things that catch our eye. That's one of the attractions, I think, of these false gods, especially gods of silver and gold. They catch the eye. They look glitzy. They look important. And oftentimes we do that with the things of this world. As Riken says, we wonder how anyone could ever bow to an idol made of silver and gold. But is it any less ridiculous to spend our time staring at computers and compulsively watching television? 
When we get caught up in the buzz, our spiritual life suffers. We find it hard to devote ourselves to prayer and the study of God's Word. We would rather be entertained than to worship. The buzz. The Reformers in the Reformation basically got rid of the buzz in their reforming of the church, in their reformation of worship, preferring simple beauty without any images. That's what we see here in Exodus. There can be beauty, but lacking in ornate adornment. To keep our focus not on human work, what God has done, but on the incomparable beauty and majesty of God Himself. That's who we are to come and see. Secondly, the worship of God is to be distinct from the world. We see this in verses 24 to 26. Not only does God dictate how we worship, but He also dictates that it's to be distinct from the world. And in particular, we are not to have idols. We see in verse 24, an altar of earth you shall an altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed. There are no, there to be no idols. But there also, verse 25, he says, we're not to be hewn stones. That is, stones with their roughness chiseled away is the point here. As John Mackay puts it, we could refer to them as dressed stones. And he says this, dressed stones were used by the people of Canaan to construct their altars because they were building materials of the highest quality from which all roughness had been chiseled away. An altar made from such costly and aesthetically pleasing stone would be a tribute to human craftsmanship, but it would be defiled from the Lord's point of view because it distracted attention from Him and His goodness. This restriction to natural stone would have emphasized that it was a God-given provision and not an act of human conception. Not of hewn stone. It could even be, as we see in verse 24, an altar of earth. Verse 26, this is an interesting statement here. There also was not to be in a high place. Uh, that way that people would go up by steps to the altar. In the, in the pagan world, in the ancient world, there their gods and their, their altars were in high places because they thought that it brought them closer to God or the gods. But you are not to do that, he says here. For one thing, God is, is everywhere. 
But the reason given here in verse 25 is that your nakedness be not exposed. In the ancient world, they wore long flowing garments. They generally did not wear underwear. This was a fact of life, although in chapter 28, verse 42, later in the book of Exodus, we're going to see that the priests actually, God commands the priests to wear linen undergarments uh, to cover their, their flesh when the priests went to worship the Lord. But of course, this reference here in verse 26 uh, to nakedness and being exposed in many ways was a reference to pagan worship where priests often directed worship completely naked. Why? Because pagan religion often had sexual immorality involved with it. Religious kind of prostitution, uh, we can call it. They thought that it would bring about fertility in the land if they engaged in these kinds of sexual acts. God said, you are not even to resemble pagan worship, let alone do these things. You are not even to resemble pagan worship is the point here. It's to be set apart from the world. Our worship is not to look like the world. It is something different that we do when we gather to worship our God. Today we often see just the opposite. We often see the opposite. Christians, churches who try to fit in with the world. Try to look like the world. David Wells, in his book from many, many years ago, now 20, 30 years ago, Courage to be Protestant, wrote about consumerism, warned of consumerism in the church, marketing, seeking relevance. And he pointed out that there were several problems. Three included this, appealing First of all, it's appealing to the needs of consumers that they identify for themselves. They identify the needs and we appeal to them instead of God identifying the needs and we seeking, we are seeking to fill those. Ultimately, it ends up being with the gospel emptied of the truth. Secondly, Wells points out when we buy a product, we, we buy it for our use in consumerism. When we accept Christ, we are for His use, not our own. So we send a different message in consumer-driven worship. And more than that, worship is not about experience. It is about the truth and it is to be God-focused. A simple beauty in biblical worship, Scripture tells us. Not a show, not entertainment, 
We gather under the Lordship of Christ to give Him glory. God alone, God alone is our audience. That leads to point number three, in worship we meet with God. In worship we meet with God. Look again at verse 24, the second half of verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. In worship, God comes and meets with His people. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. And this is especially true in the worship of God's people. The psalmist says in Psalm 22, 3, God inhabits the praises of Israel. Sometimes, some translations read, God is enthroned on the praises of His people. But the Hebrew literally, the Hebrew word literally means to sit or to dwell. God sits on, dwells on the praises of His people. God is present when we gather. He meets with us. Does that affect your worship? How you come to worship? Oh, that it would affect our worship. Oh, that it would affect our preparation for worship. Our individual performance in worship. We are the performers in one sense, each one of us. God is watching. God is with us as we give Him praise. Pastors are always under scrutiny, which is a good thing. You're all encouraging to us, more encouraging than we deserve. Times, how did the pastors do? How did the musicians do? Etc., etc. Rather, ask yourself when you leave, how did I do in the worship of the Lord today? How did I do in worshiping the Lord today? We're not here as consumers or people watching entertainment. We are here worshiping. You, we together, are the actors as we gather on Sunday mornings. In fact, we are unfit even to come into His presence. We're unfit even to come into His presence. But God has made a way. This was true of the Israelites. That's why God gave these sacrifices to His people. What did the sacrifices do? They reminded them of their unworthiness every time they came to worship God. A constant reminder of their unworthiness in the presence of God. They, it taught them their need of atonement. Isn't it interesting that God has just given them the Ten Commandments and immediately, basically in this passage, He says, you're not going to keep them. You're not going to keep them. 
And he talks about the importance of these sacrifices and what it looks like to sacrifice for the sins in breaking the commandments that he's just given them. God is gracious in this sense. There's two kinds of offerings listed here very briefly. Burnt offerings. Burnt offerings and burnt offerings. The, the worshiper would lay his hands on the head of the animal. That would mean that he identified with it. And then that animal would be killed in that person's place. In a burnt offering, the entire animal would be consumed as a way of saying your sin has been completely taken away. And thus they would be allowed to come into the presence of God. The other offering listed here in verse 24 is a peace offering. It's also sometimes called a fellowship offering. The Hebrew word is shelemim. You can probably hear the word shalom in there. Shalomim, shalom, the peace offering. It dealt with sin but with a different emphasis. The relationship with God uh, uh, was, at, was atoned for. Relationship with God had been atoned for but with the peace offering. The whole animal was burned. Uh, sorry, not the whole animal was burned. Only the choicest parts. The rest was cooked and eaten so that they would have a rich meal, a joyful celebration together. There's fellowship as they met with God. These sacrifices, of course, look forward to Jesus, to the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for us, the one who took away our sins to reconcile us to God. So what? So that we may have fellowship with Him. And of course, we can know God. We can fellowship with Him. We can meet with Him only through the Lord Jesus Christ because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They are only a reminder of sin. But in Christ, by faith in Christ alone, our sins are washed away so that we might know and worship God and offering our, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Ligon Duncan once told the story of an elder who told him about going back and forth, traveling across the, the Pacific during World War II to go to war. And on the ship, both ways, they had a worship, worship services with chaplains or pastors leading them. And on the way over into battle, the worship services were packed, filled with, with, with men worshiping, in, or at least in those worship services. But on the way back, the worship services were practically empty. Why do you come to worship? Why do you come to worship? Why are you here? Is it to 
get something from it, it's okay. Get something from God, it's okay. But really, our desire is to give God the worship that He deserves. God desires worshipers. That's what Scripture says. He has redeemed us, just as He did the Israelites, to worship Him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that You indeed are good and gracious. We thank You, O God, that You have called us, saved us to be worshipers, to worship You. And so, O God, we pray that You would enable us to worship You with all that is within us, to worship You from the depths of our being, that You may be praised in our hearts, in our songs, and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.